Today we're going to take a look at the most important fact in the whole of history. Now, I'm not a particularly big history buff, but I know enough to spot that these statements, which are apparently taken from genuine exam papers, are not quite right, okay? So first of all, ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies, and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived in the Sarah Desert and traveled by Camelot. Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He died before he ever reached Canada. <laughs> the Greeks were a highly sculptured people, and without them, we wouldn't have history. They had myths. A myth is a female moth. Eventually, the Romans conquered the Greeks. History, wait a minute, this machine here. History calls people Romans because they never stayed in one place for long. Sir Francis Drake circumcised the world with a hundred-foot clipper. <laughs> Johann Bach wrote a great many musical compositions and had a large number of children. Bach died from 1750 to the present. <laughs> Bach was the most famous composer in the world, and so was Handel. Handel was half German and half Italian and half English. He was very large. Beethoven wrote music even though he was deaf. He was so deaf, he wrote loud music. <laughs> Beethoven expired in 1827 and later died from this. <laughs> Apparently all genuine, from exam papers. I believe the source. Quite likely true. We don't need to know the correct exam answers to many history questions to know that the event that we are celebrating today Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most important fact in the whole of history. Why? Well, let me mention a couple of things. First, the resurrection makes Christianity unique among the world's religions. Christianity is the only religion in the world that stands or falls on whether its founder is alive, whether its founder was raised from the dead. Every single founder of a world religion is dead, except for one. Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive today, changing people's lives. And secondly, it establishes that Jesus is who he says he was, who he said he was, and therefore he's to be taken really seriously. Tim Keller leads a church in New York, and he put it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? See, history matters. Facts matter. Truth matters. What happened or did not happen to Jesus matters. And so today, this Easter, I thought it might be helpful to either remind you or perhaps in some cases to introduce you to just a little bit of the historical evidence for the resurrection. The Bible records that the resurrected Jesus, having died, been buried, and uh, three days later, raised back to life, he appeared to a lot of people. So first of all, to some of his female followers as they visited the tomb. He appeared to his disciples individually, in small groups, and when they were gathered together. Paul even records an occasion where more than 500 of Jesus' followers 
actually got together. They all were present with him at one time. And the book of Acts tells us that Jesus showed himself over a period of 40 days, teaching his followers before finally his ascension into heaven, which is where he is now. A book which I would highly recommend to anyone interested in the evidence for the resurrection is The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. He's written a number of brilliant books, The Case for Christianity, The Case for Christ, I think is there, The Case for Easter. And in it, Lee, who was a professional journalist, he interviews some distinguished experts on the evidence for the resurrection. He was an atheist who believe that Christians blindly believe this story of the resurrection, part of their kind of nice religion and kind of nice things to believe. He was determined to prove them wrong when his wife became a Christian. So he set out to sort this thing out. And in the introduction, he wrote this, there was no doubt in my mind that they were sincerely wrong. They had to be. As a reporter, I'd seen lots of dead people and none of them had come back to life. Christians could spin fanciful tales of an empty tomb, but they could never change the grim, absolute finality of death. Clearly, the resurrection was the linchpin of the Christian faith. After all, anyone can claim to be the son of God. But if someone could substantiate that, by a, that assertion by returning to life after being certifiably dead and buried, well, that would be a compelling confirmation that he was telling the truth, even for a skeptic like me. And the evidence that he then recounts from his conversations with these historical experts, he says, was so irrefutable that he became a Christian himself. And his book is really, really accessible to anyone wanting to really look into the claim that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Strobel wrote this, of all the evidence, incident after incident, witness after witness, detail after detail, corroboration after corroboration, was extremely impressive. Although I tried, he says, I, could think of, I couldn't think of any more thoroughly attested event in ancient history. So what was it that convinced him and has convinced now billions of others through history that this extraordinary claim is a fact, it's true? So I'm just going to look very briefly at some of this evidence. So firstly, we're confronted by the unusual fact of women as the chief witnesses. All four biographies of Jesus report that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. In Matthew 28, two women visit Jesus' tomb. There's this violent earthquake. They see an angel who tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead and is heading to Galilee where they'll see him. And after showing them the empty tomb, the angel instructs them to go and tell the disciples, which they did, with this extraordinary, almost unbelievable story. Now, in the 21st century, you might ask, well, what's so unusual about women being the chief witnesses? In the Near Eastern and entire Greco-Roman world, Roman world of the first century, men and women were not considered equal. Women were not permitted to testify in a legal proceeding in Judaism. They were perceived to lack education, be given to making up stories, be easily deceived, and therefore they were totally unreliable. And so if you were going to make up a story of a man rising from the dead in the first century and you wanted to have eyewitnesses testify to that story, wanted to convince people this story was true, the last people in the world that you would choose as eyewitnesses in that society 
would be women. And yet the biographies of Jesus found in the Gospels simply tell it like it is. And Lee Strobel writes this, the fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. So we have this unusual fact of women as the chief witnesses. And then we have the undeniable fact of the tomb being empty. One of the towering legal scholars of the 20th century was Cambridge-educated Sir Normus. <laughs> Sir Normus. His surname is Anderson. Sir Norman Anderson. And after a lifetime of analysing the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, he said this. The empty tomb then forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection have dashed themselves in vain. So let's turn here to Matthew chapter 28. If you've got a Bible, you might like to come with me to chapter 28 and verse 5. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The angel invited the women to come in to the burial chamber. The gospel writer John visited the tomb a little later that morning and he records that the linen cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' body and the handkerchief that had been wrapped around his head was left right there. The tomb was empty. One of the most amazing facts about the early Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection was that it originated in the very city where Jesus had just been crucified. And if the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection had been false then all the Jews would have had to do to nip this Christian heresy in the bud was to have gone and found the corpse of Jesus. But they couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. Even the early, earliest Jewish propaganda against the Christians doesn't say Jesus is still somewhere. He's still in the tomb. Go and visit where his body is buried. They were saying that the disciples stole his body. Clearly, this tomb is empty. The disciples must have taken it. So we read in verse 12, of Matthew 28. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So they posted a guard there. Now, what about the possibility that the disciples stole the body? Is there any possibility realistically? 14 years ago, I was in Jerusalem and I visited the garden tomb, which some scholars believe to be one of the possible sites for Jesus' tomb. And it's carved out of stone. It was actually a really moving experience to walk in. I think I was alone at one point in there, just to walk into this, this cave with uh, the the you know, kind of where a body would have lain, carved out of the stone right there, and imagine Jesus, and then imagine him being raised to life from there. The entrance to that tomb has a sloping slot, and then you've got this disc-shaped stone weighing possibly as much as two tons, and the, the slope comes away, and so it would take a lot of men to move it away from the entrance, and then it's secured with another small stone, but it would only take perhaps one or two men to actually put it in place. And so... It's quite a serious thing to get that stone opened up. Matthew's gospel tells us that Pilate, 
the Roman governor at the time who had ordered the execution of Jesus. He knew of Jesus' claims that he would rise from the dead. And along with the Pharisees, they were pressurizing him. He was concerned that the disciples would indeed try and steal the body. And so he gave the order for the tomb to be made secure. And we read in the end of the last chapter there, Matthew 27 and verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So think about this with me. Christians on that first Easter day and thereafter were running around saying, Jesus is risen from the dead. And some of the Jewish critics responded and said, no, the disciples stole the body. So the Christians responded, that's not possible. There were guards posted by the tomb. And the Jewish critics responded, but the guards fell asleep. And the Christians replied, no, the leaders bribed the guards to say that they fell asleep. And Lee Strobel then points out that if there weren't any guards, if this story was made up about the tomb being sealed and the guards being present and being paid off, the exchange might have sounded more like this. In response to the claim that Jesus was risen, the Jewish critics would have said, the disciples stole the body. And the Christians would have said, but the guards would have prevented it. And the Jewish critics would have responded, well, what guards? There were no guards. But nowhere in first century history do we read any Jewish critic of Christianity say that there were no guards. Apart from the presence of the guards, it is actually quite absurd to suggest that the early disciples stole the body. Why? Because there was absolutely no advantage to them having the story if the story was not true. No advantage to being a Christian. The only thing that disciples could look forward to by this claim that they had seen Jesus risen was social rejection, economic disaster through the boycotting of their businesses, physical torture, and often death. Roman history tells us that during Nero's persecution about 30 years after Jesus, after his death, Christian children, men, and women were wrapped in the skins of animals and thrown to wild dogs to be eaten alive. On one occasion, Christians were smeared with tar and set on fire as human torches to illuminate the night as Nero rode around Rome in his chariot, just viewing this spectacle. Why would you put yourself through that if the claim was fabricated? The hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus, who talked and ate with him and knew firsthand that the resurrection was true, were willing to suffer and die for believing it. Their families were murdered. Some of them were crucified like the Apostle Peter. Some were beheaded like the Apostle Paul. They were fed to lions. They were burned alive. They, but there's no historical evidence, apparently, that any of these eyewitnesses cracking under the pressure. They followed their master Jesus to the death because they knew that what they saw was true. Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, people will die for what they believe to be the truth. People will actually die for mistaken beliefs, but no one dies for what they know to be a lie. And here's the last little fact I just want to present for your consideration today. It's not a little fact, it's just that limited time means there's not long to spend on each. The unanticipated fact of this faith arising among Jews. In Matthew 28, verse 9, it says this, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. This is the women he's meeting. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. That's the women. Then we go to verse 17. This is the men. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. 
And so worshipping a, a person, you know, clasping feet was the near eastern custom of bowing low before at least a king. They were saying, Jesus, you are my king. You are my savior. You are my Lord. They worshipped him. Well, what does that prove? Well, these were Jewish people with over one and a half thousand years of tradition telling them that Jewish people never bowed down and worshipped any human being. It is idolatry. It is blasphemy. They bowed down and worshipped Jesus because they were convinced of his divinity. And then there's the moving of the Sabbath. Again, for traditional people, for about 1,500 years, Jews had worshipped God on the Sabbath, the Saturday, the seventh day of the week, because that was the day of rest when God rested from creating the universe. Historians say within a few years of Jesus' death, all these Jews living in Israel began to worship God on a Sunday. What happened on a Sunday to make the Jews change their day of worship? Their centuries of tradition. What happened? Well, we know, don't we? The resurrection happened on a Sunday. People generally don't like change. People of tradition really don't like change. What could account for the throwing off of over one and a half thousand years of tradition and the rising of this new faith among Jewish people? It must have been something amazing, something life-shattering to cause vast numbers of them to throw off tradition and go completely against the way they were brought up. It was. It was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. History tells us there were many messianic Jewish movements, uh, both before and after Jesus. And like Jesus, the Romans killed off all these would-be messiahs because they were a threat to Roman rule. But in no other Jewish messianic movement do we find any other group of Jews saying, our Messiah rose from the dead. Why only this movement of followers of Jesus do we have this unique claim for this one reason? Because it's true. Because it happened. Because Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. Now, after recording the various encounters here in Matthew's gospel we're looking at, Matthew's gospel tells us this in verse 16 of chapter 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's always struck me as strange that some worshipped him and some doubted. If you look at and examine all the evidence historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it's more than sufficient for a reasonable mind to conclude that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. Even if it's like, how do you even believe that? Well, except the facts prove it to be the case. But let's just ask the question, what does it mean for you or for me to have this choice? Some believed and some doubted. Sometimes people struggle to believe because it seems like too good to be true couldn't make this stuff up. God says, I'm going to give you something solid so that you can know for sure that I exist, that your faith is firmly based in reality. I'm going to raise a person from the dead as a fact of history, and anyone who puts their trust in this person will likewise rise from the dead. That's really some promise, isn't it? Two weeks ago, John Bodley reminded us that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead 2,000 years ago, it was a sneak preview of Jesus' promise to resurrect his people for life 
in eternity with him. These two events, the past fact of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the future assurance that we will be raised with him are like the two walls that are holding this ceiling up. And just as we have confidence that this ceiling isn't coming down anytime soon, the resurrection means that we can have now this living hope. And you know, some people doubt, not because it's too good to be true, but sadly, they, they kind of don't want it to be true. Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, if he is unique in the whole of world history, if he stands in a category of one, then this one man is indeed the savior of the world the Lord of all creation, and that should elicit a response. It means that we're going to have to do something with this man. His teachings and his call to follow him carry enormous weight. And we're confronted with the need to change. And the change that Jesus invites us into is a change that will result actually in our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate satisfaction in life, and our ultimate experience of eternal life. A man risen from the dead, alive and working in every one of us today by his spirit, transforming us and offering us living hope. As we consider the death of Jesus on the cross, carrying the weight of the sin of the world, including yours and including mine, and his resurrection from the dead, we too face that choice. Do we worship him or do we hold back? And my encouragement to us all is to realize that what we believe about the resurrection is not some religious story. It's actually truth. It's actually fact, historical fact, solidly reliable. And it's a rock on which we can, our lives can be firmly built. Let's walk with confidence in that fact. Now, some of you may not be quite there yet. You know, that's okay. I'd say keep looking at the historical evidence for Jesus. I recommend that book. You know, uh, The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. Uh, among many other books that will do similarly, often written by atheists who set out to disprove the resurrection and find themselves coming to faith. Keep asking questions. I'd encourage you, you just heard from, was it Vanessa on the video just now, uh, talking about Alpha, it starts on the 20th of April. Sign up for that. What have you got to lose? But you get to ask the questions. Say, just tell me a bit more about that. You know, I've, I've got questions about it. Seek the answer, because if it's true, it has just eternal consequences for your life. Some of us may be at the point today where we're actually ready to say yes to Jesus' call on our life. And even if your questions aren't all answered, in fact, the truth is they may never be all answered, you have realized you want today to make the decision that you're going to be among those who choose to worship Jesus. Jesus. 